This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. This episode of EM Weekly is brought to you by the Emergency Management Leaders Conference. This conference is going to be a must attend. The EMLC is bringing leaders together from federal, state, tribal, and local governments. There's two keynote sessions and eight planetary sessions. There's also a CEM workshop and some testing and also a career fair and much, 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 much more with lots and lots of opportunity for networking. This is going to occur on June 12th to the 13th at the Saddlebrook Properties in Tampa, Florida. The Emergency Management Leaders Conference is uniting leaders from both the private and public sectors in emergency management. For more information, click the link in the show notes or go to emlc.us. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Once there's an electric grid outage, the clock starts ticking because uh, there's limited duration of backup fuel uh, for emergency generators. Hi, and welcome to the EM Weekly Show, and I hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend, and I hope everybody took time to remember those who have fought and died for our great nation uh, here in the United States, and for those of you throughout the rest of the world, I know Memorial Day probably doesn't have the same meaning, but it's uh, something that's very sacred and special to those of us in the United States, just remembering those who fought and died for our country. So today... We're talking about the grid and uh, with Thomas Popick. And this is a great subject as we enter into the summer months here. And this is when there's the most strain on the grid, right? You always hear throughout the Western United States, at least, of the flex alerts. And when ISO knows that the power is going to be stressed out, they tell us to, hey, you know, turn off the things that we don't need. Don't use your washer machines and whatnot during the uh, peak hours uh, just to keep the stress off the system. And this is when, as emergency managers, we really take a look at what's going on with the grid. So summer's coming up good topic here and how vulnerable and how we how can we as emergency managers help prepare our grid well before we get into the interview i just wanted to take uh, time to let our brothers and sisters in maryland know that we are thinking about them during this time when they're being flooded out with heavy rains another storm is coming uh, right behind uh, this one as well hopefully it doesn't impact maryland but there's more rain coming um, on, on the east coast so Maryland, we are we're thinking about you. Reach out early, please. You know, I know that some of our emergency managers and our first responders are impacted by these floodwaters. Uh, please reach out early, and we are here uh, standing by for you. So, Maryland, we're thinking about you. Well, to stay up on trends in emergency management, check out forums.emweekly.com, and you can create groups, you can read and interact in the forums, make comments, share documents, and your ideas. And this is at forums.emweekly.com. We would love to have you over there and uh, enjoy this interaction with this great emergency management community. Let's get into the interview. I'm excited today to have Tom Popick with me, and he is the chairman and 
president and director of the Foundation for Resilient Societies. And it's really kind of cool to be doing a follow-up right now, uh, basically after Michael Mabey's book and or his interview that we did regarding the grid. And this organization that we're talking to today uh, is is all about the electrical grid and, and even deeper. So, Thomas, welcome to the show, and uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, and then uh, and how you got into working on this topic. Certainly. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I am uh, the president of the Foundation for Resilient Societies. We advocate for greater critical infrastructure protection, in particular uh, the electric grid, which is the keystone uh, infrastructure. One of our distinctive activities is to appear in the federal rulemaking dockets at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. It's a pretty obscure part of the federal government, but it has an important function in that it approves all the reliability and security standards for the, the U.S. electric grid. So that, that's a little bit about myself and what we do. So, you know, looking over some of the stuff that you're doing here, and I was looking at your priorities, and as some, so you have four priorities for specifically with the electrical grid. You have the solar systems, or solar storms, I mean, the electromagnetic pulse, a physical attack, and then the cyber attack. So let's kind of delve into each one of these areas really quick and tell me what the concerns are specifically about the power grid. So let's talk about the solar storms in general first. Is this a real concern? I mean, sure, that's a great place to start. Periodically, the sun ejects a mass of charged particles. Uh, sometimes these charged particles just go floating off into space, but uh, sometimes the particles hit the Earth. And when these uh, charged particles impact the Earth's magnetic field, it deflects the magnetic field. And this deflection then can induce currents in long conductors. So you may say, well, what kind of long conductors do we have uh, here on Earth? Uh, well, we have... Uh, telecommunication lines, but also the transmission lines of the electric grid. When the currents are induced in these transmission lines, they affect the transformers at the end of the lines, causing the transformers to overheat and prematurely fail. Uh, this has uh, happened in uh, previous uh, small solar storms, but the concern is that if there was a severe solar storm, there would be many of these transformers that would fail simultaneously. In the process of failing, they also uh, overheat and consume what's called reactive power. This can cause a cascading collapse of the electric grid. Already in March 1989, the electric grid in Quebec, Canada collapsed during a, a, a moderate solar storm. So our concern is that a severe solar storm could collapse uh, the U.S. electric grid on a continent-wide scale, and in the process, uh, damage these very difficult-to-replace extra high-voltage transformers. What's the recovery time for if we get hit with a, a major solar storm? The re well, uh, there's a couple ways to look at this. Uh, first, how long could a solar storm last? And they can last for over a week. Mm. It may be then over a week uh, to restore the electric grid, uh, just assuming that there hasn't been equipment damage, but if there is equipment damage, a lot of these large transformers are manufactured overseas. The typical lead time to replace these transformers is one to two years. Wow. We're really talking about a long recovery time uh, for uh, one of these solar storms impacting uh, the U.S. electric grid. 
I want to go to the next one here, which is the uh, electromagnetic pulse, also known as the EMP. And I interviewed William Forsham on his book, One Second After, and on the, the subsequent two other books that he has after that. And so kind of talked a little bit about this and, and, and what it means. But what does the EMP as a, well, I guess as an attack, what does that mean for us um, as our, our, as the grid? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me explain a little bit bit about nuclear EMP, uh, that would occur when a nuclear weapon is detonated in the atmosphere at an altitude between, uh, say, uh, 40 kilometers and, and 400 uh, kilometers. Uh, this, uh, depending on the altitude, uh, it would produce a series of electromagnetic pulses uh, radiating downward within the line of sight to Earth. Uh, there's a short pulse that would affect sensitive electronics, uh, for example, integrated circuits, and then a longer pulse that would be very similar to the effect of a solar storm. Uh, it would affect uh, mostly long conductors, and that, that would be transformers uh, that are attached to uh, transmission lines. So it, that kind of a, a nuclear attack uh, could uh, collapse the U.S. electric grid, and in the process also uh, damage a lot of equipment, which would make restoration difficult. Wow, so we're, we're still talking like a long-term recovery after something like that, especially with the equipment being made overseas, right? Uh, yes, uh, we're, we're talking about a recovery uh, time frame that would be in months or years. Yeah, and this is something that when people lose power for you know a couple hours or so, it really kind of puts them to a tizzy. I could imagine what it would be, what would happen if we're without power for a few months or a few weeks, for that matter. Well, certainly, e even losing power for days would, would have an enormous societal impact. But you're correct; losing power for weeks, months, or years uh, would really have severe. Uh, impact on other critical infrastructures that we all depend on. Uh, the uh, water system and wastewater systems, uh, I think, would be number one. But right. telecommunications would also be very significant. And, and ultimately, uh, food distribution would be affected, too. So let's get into that in a little bit here. I want to go over the next two priorities that you guys have. And the one I think is kind of interesting was in 2013, and you guys talk about this a little bit on your website as well, when one of the substations in Northern California was attacked. And basically, if you guys don't remember this, it was, uh, well, uh, the basically AK-47 round uh, was found into or, or fired into one of the substations. From that, there was a series of unknown and packages, um, some bottles that were thrown into, like with acid bottles were thrown into some of the other substations, and so much so that Southern California Edison and a couple of the other, uh, I'm not sure if San Diego did it or not, but I know SoCal Edison did, and I think uh, PG&E did, they put security guards in front of all their substations for a, a long period of time. Let's talk about that physical attack, and what does that mean on the grid? Physical attack, uh, that's certainly a very serious vulnerability for the U.S. electric grid. I'll just tell you uh, what has been published in the newspaper. Uh, the re Wall Street Journal uh, has disclosed that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission did a study and determined that there are nine uh, critical substations in the United States. Uh, if these substations were to be attacked, it would have a destabilizing effect on uh, the electric grid. I, I tend to think uh, that the article uh, stated the implications uh, rather broadly. Uh, I think that 
the nuance of, of that uh, study that was leaked uh, from FERC uh, may not have been captured by the article, but certainly uh, it's true that there are critical substations uh, in the United States, if they were uh, physically attacked, uh, could uh, destabilize the U.S. electric grid and cause uh, a cascading uh, collapse. So how long would we be down without power if something like that occurred, if the terrorists decide to attack our physical grid? I think that the Metcalf substation uh, incident is, is a good way to look at this. During Metcalf, the radiators for the transformers were shot out. It's fortunate that the control room at PG&E was able to monitor the temperature of the transformers and shut them down before they overheated <laughs> and uh, caught fire. Uh, if you have a transformer that catches fire or explodes, that's a total replacement. And again, the lead time for that kind of replacement uh, is in months or years. Uh, if that circumstance is prevented by good instrumentation and monitoring of transformers, then the recovery time would be a lot shorter. Mm -hmm. It would be replacing the damaged components in the transformer and, and, and then restarting that substation. And that brings us into the next one, the cyber attack, which seems to be in the news as of late. Uh, we've had, obviously, you know, talks about the Russians uh, going into our elections and stuff like this, and, and obviously data is being stolen every day, you know, from major companies and small companies alike. So cyber attacks are, are a real deal. What does a cyber attack look like on the grid, and how realistic is it that the grid is not protected from cyber attacks? Well, the, the grid has cyber attack issues because the grid is directly or indirectly connected to the public internet. Mm. That's, the public internet is really the source of almost all of cyber attacks. So how does that interconnection occur? Well, first of all, Electric utilities have corporate systems or business systems, as they're called. These are systems that employees use uh, for all manner of things, web browsing, uh, sending and receiving emails, uh, keeping track of financial reports for what's going on at the utilities, uh, word processing, all that kind of thing. So uh, you can just imagine uh, with your own personal computer, it's connected to the Internet, and, and that, that's essential. Uh, the problem comes uh, when these business systems or corporate systems are connected to what are, is called the operational technology or the part of the computer systems at a utility that is actually used to flip switches in the electric grid or control generation plants. The scenario that we're concerned about is that an attacker comes in through the public internet into the business systems of an electric utility and then hops over into the operational systems of the utility, then uh, flips switches or downpowers generation, causing a blackout. Uh, there's another concern as well, uh, and that is electric utilities that use the public Internet uh, for uh, communication between control rooms and substations. Uh, so if uh, that... Uh, connection isn't secure, and, and it's via the public Internet. There's the opportunity to uh, take over control of substations. There's also another vulnerability called remote access, and this would be when uh, vendors install equipment in substations, uh, and periodically this equipment, uh, the firmware, uh, the software code that's embedded in the equipment may need to be updated for maintenance purposes, and sometimes uh, these uh, Vendor equipment uh, have been 
connected to the public internet uh, to make the the update process and the maintenance process uh, less expensive for vendors, uh, and that that causes a big risk too because if the vendors' passwords are compromised for remote access, then that's an avenue uh, for, for cyber attack. But fortunately, there is a new cybersecurity regulation that is being considered by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that would resolve a lot of these re- remote access issues. So, in general, we have two of our concerns here, the physical attack and the cyber attack, something that we can monitor at least and prevent at best um, those two those two scenarios. So the ones that are really concerning at this point then are going to be the solar storms, which we have no control over, and the EMP, which is realistically another form of attack, right? Let's just say, for instance, so now that we know what the concerns are, a couple of them we can prepare for, we can try to stop, two of them we can sort of prepare for. And the grid, as most of us in emergency management know, or at least have a basic understanding of, it is does have some issues and, and is vulnerable in a good day. I mean, we had two really good examples of that. One was the Northeastern blackout a couple of years ago. And then a couple of years after that, we had the uh, the blackout from the West Coast in California and Arizona. Can we talk about those two issues and, and how that showed where our vulnerabilities are? Certainly. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss each of those in turn. So for the 2003 Northeast blackout, it showed that the electric grid can have cascading failure. Uh, that failure uh, started in the Midwest. Uh, due, uh, the proximate cause was a transmission line uh, contacting a tree branch, uh, but there were a lot of contributing factors. The cascade uh, went all the way to New York City and uh, caused a blackout of about 50 million people uh, for nearly uh, 24 hours. Uh, that showed the vulnerabilities uh, to cascade uh, in the eastern part of the country. Uh, the incident in 2011 uh, that you refer to did start in Arizona. Uh, a technician at a substation uh, threw a switch uh, without going uh, through a checklist properly. He, he was looking at the checklist, but he was interrupted in that process uh, and therefore uh, threw a switch that uh, hadn't uh, wasn't supposed to be thrown at that point in time. The cascade then uh, started at that substation in Arizona and went all the way uh to Southern California, uh, blacking out over a million people. Uh, so, so both of those incidents uh, show how susceptible the electric grid uh, is to cascade, and uh, those weren't even deliberate incidents. Uh, you, you can imagine if there's a physical attack, there may be uh, multiple uh, sources for the cascade, likewise with a, a cyber attack. Mm-hmm. How fragile is the electric system today? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears lots of hats. So how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It's just a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. Pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises are what they offer. 
spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations and more. Exercises come from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on your exercise program today and visit TTX Vault at www.ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that break and thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't really bring you uh, what we have. So check them out and let them know that you came from EM Weekly. Let's continue the interview. How fragile is the electric system today? Let me put it this way. I, I think there's a lot more that could be done to protect the electric grid. In some ways, uh, the electric grid is robust. I think it's robust uh, to uh, weather-related uh, outages, although people complain uh, it's rare to get uh, any kind of a cascade uh, from, uh, say, ice loading on transmission lines and that kind of thing. So uh, I think the grid operators uh, do uh, a very good job. As a matter of fact, I think the grid operators do an excellent job uh, handling events uh, which occur uh, pretty frequently, and these these events uh, do not cause cascading outage and uh, electric grid collapse. But the problem comes for events. Uh, which rarely occur, and uh, su- such as uh, solar storms or events which haven't occurred yet. For example, a coordinated physical and cyber attack. And that's where we as a society really have to uh, spend a lot more time making the grid uh, more robust and resilient. Okay, so we lose power. And so people have to you know, rely upon candles or battery-operated light for a couple of days. What's the big deal? The big deal is that once there's an electric grid outage, the clock starts ticking because uh, there's limited duration of backup fuel uh, for emergency generators. For example, uh, most cell phone towers have in the vicinity of about 24 hours of backup uh, fuel. So you're talking about a blackout that lasts a couple days. Well, about 24 hours into that couple days, people are going to lose a lot of their communication uh, from cell phones. And, and I think that that would be a pretty big impact. Uh, a lot of people don't even have landlines now, uh, so it would be certainly very difficult for them to communicate. I'll, I'll tell you another reason. Uh, even a short blackout of a couple days is a very big deal. Past blackouts have shown that the emergency diesel generators at hospitals, fire stations, police stations, uh, these critical first responders those diesel generators don't always reliably accurate, uh, mm. re- reliably um, operate. Uh, so we could expect, I, I would say, about 25% of emer- emergency diesel generators uh, to not operate initially or to fail uh, soon after uh, they were called upon. So again, even just a couple-day blackout, if it's widespread, could uh, have very significant impacts, and, and especially institutions such as hospitals that are dependent on uh, continuous power for patient care. What about water and sewer? Most water treatment systems do not have uh, 100% uh, backup generation. The water systems simply just take too much energy out of the grid for there to be emergency diesel generators to provide 100%. Now, there are some communities that have water towers, and there may be, say, 24 hours of water in the air. That's what it's called, water in the air. That means water up in the tower. So uh, after uh, power is taken out to those kind of gravity-fed systems, the residents of those communities could expect service uh, for for hours or maybe even days if the water uh, is carefully conserved. 
But uh, without the uh, grid being restored, uh, we're going to find out that water treatment systems uh, simply aren't going to continue to function very long. And is there, there's an issue with, with sewer, correct? To, as well, pumping stations and stuff like that, getting sewage out well, of the well, system? Well, certainly. The, yeah, any kind of a sewage system, there's pumping required. Uh, the electric power requirements for that pumping uh, are substantial. And, and so what will happen, and this is very unfortunate, sewage systems are designed to work where there is a mixture of water and waste. So if it's just waste flowing into the system, uh, then those systems are going to get clogged up. And uh, it may be very difficult uh, to get them unclogged. In fact, there may be uh, permanent damage uh, to the systems uh, if, if the mixture of water and waste uh, isn't as it would be in, in normal times. So you're right. Uh, a power outage that would persist for several days uh, could have uh, very massive impacts both on water treatment and on uh, sewer systems. In general, I mean, we are a society today that is built upon technology and electricity. I mean, outside of just the lights and the the comforts of having electricity in your house, such as maybe even heat, you know, even if you have oil burning heat at your house, like in the Northeast, it still requires electricity to start the to start the, the boilers and all that kind of stuff. So since we are required or relying on electricity and these things, I mean, like everybody goes to the store, they use their ATM cards, they work online, go to school online, you know, um, all this stuff is requiring power. So as a society today, we're really, this is a critical, critical issue more than just a comfort issue, correct? Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Continuous electric power is essential for modern societies. At the same time, our society is having trouble coming to grips with what it takes uh, to provide that power. For example, right now, uh, there's a debate going on about resilient generation and how much uh, resilient generation with fuel stored on site our, our society is, is willing to pay for. Uh, that debate uh again, is ongoing at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Department of Energy, and uh, among utilities. Uh, here, uh, where the Foundation for Resilient Societies is headquartered in New England, the grid operator, uh, which would be ISO New England, came out with a report just in January of this year with uh, 23 scenarios uh, during uh, times of grid stress and, and for the vast majority of those scenarios, uh, there would be rolling blackouts. And when I talk about rolling blackouts, I'm not talking about an hour or two. I'm talking for uh, up to 100 hours over a period that could be a week or longer. So these are uh, very significant uh, potential societal impacts. And uh, for the ISO New England scenarios, we're not even talking about uh, an attack or some kind of deliberate action. We're, we're just talking about what could happen uh, when it gets cold outside, when there's a cold snap. So, so again, uh, we are very dependent as a society on uh, reliable electric power, but uh, we're also uh, having trouble uh, coming to grips with what's required to make sure uh, that that secure and reliable power is delivered. And on the West Coast, we, we have the, in California, we have the issue as well. And ours is the opposite, not when it gets cold out. It's, it's normally occurs in the summertime when there's a really big demand on the power due to air conditioning and 
things like that. And we'll go through uh, the flex alerts, as they call them, and asking us to turn things off and and not to use the air conditioner during certain, during peak hours. And it it seems to be an inconvenience for people. I mean, you know, it's kind of, you know, people complain about it like, oh, you know, it's during the peak hours is when I'm the hottest and it's when I want my you know, temperature in my house to be 70 degrees. And it's sometimes hard to get people to, to understand what's going on and to participate in, in that flex alert. How do we really, as emergency managers, how can we embrace this concept that's going on here, the issues that are going on, and educate our community about the real issues that go with electrical power in the United States? That's an excellent question. I would say, uh, first of all, uh, when a grid operator such as ISO New England comes out with a report uh, saying, that rolling blackouts can be expected during cold snaps, the community and emergency planners really need to pay attention. What are the implications for a community? Uh, For example, for an urban area, would a curfew be called? Uh, Would pharmacies be guarded by the police uh, during uh, times of electric grid outage? Uh, Will there be advance notice of rolling blackouts to city officials or to the public? Uh, we really need to think through the implications of this because uh, if there's advance notice to the public uh, of rolling blackouts, you can see that the public uh, could take proactive steps, but at the same time, uh, criminals in the society may take advantage. Hmm. I don't think that we as a, as a country have really thought through a lot of these issues of what would happen uh, if there are rolling blackouts or a blackout of a day or a week or longer. We haven't uh, come to grips with this. Also, for a long-term blackout, that's a blackout that persists for days, say uh, more than 72 hours. Those are very, very difficult to plan for. There's an old expression, which is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It really is important to have appropriate standards for grid reliability, security, and resilience in place so that we can prevent these uh, blackouts that, that may persist for, for example, for 72 hours. It's very difficult uh, for any emergency planner uh, to plan for that kind of event. So one of the other issues associated with the blackout, and it's kind of odd, I was watching this program the other day, and it, it brought up a really good point, and I think about it. It's the whole like Life Without People you know, show that was on the Discovery Channel, I think it is. And they right. part of it, they talk about how in X amount of time, the uh, nuclear power plants are going to have a, a major meltdown because they can't keep their rods covered with water because of evaporation. How long would that take? How, how many months would it take for that water to evaporate for those rods to be exposed and have an issue specifically? I'm thinking like... Todd, thank you very much for that question. My group, the Foundation for Resilient Societies, has done quite a bit of work on that issue. As a matter of fact, in 2011, about three weeks before the events at Fukushima, we submitted a 100-page petition for rulemaking to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission asking for greater protection of spent fuel pools against just the kind of event that you're talking about, a long-term loss of electric power for cooling. Uh, Fukushima amply demonstrated that when spent fuel pools lack electricity or cooling, they start boiling off pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. They start boiling off in a day or two, depending on how hot the rods are, how uh, recently those uh, spent fuel rods were taken out of the reactor. And then the question is, how long before the boiling results in the water level 
getting to the top of the fuel rods. Uh, these fuel rods have a zirconium cladding. When this cladding uh, hits open air, there's a strong exothermic reaction, uh, which is uh, similar to a fire. That would result in large quantities of radiation or radioactive material, and therefore radiation uh, being emitted uh, in a plume that could extend dozens uh, or even hundreds of miles uh, downwind from the spent fuel pool. So, so that is an extraordinary threat. We uh, proposed to the U.S. Uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission that long-term cooling of spent fuel pools be required. And, and how could this be done? Uh, well, it can be done with something that's called makeup water. So it would be just pumping enough water into the pools uh, such that uh, the top of the rods would remain covered. The requirements for electricity for makeup water are pretty minimal, and uh, they could be accomplished in a number of different ways. The makeup water would have to uh, continue to be pumped in for a long enough period that the rods would cool down and uh, therefore uh, wouldn't catch fire. And so, so we're talking about makeup water uh, being pumped for a year or two. And uh, what are the power sources that, that might be able to do that? Well, we identified several in our petition, but uh, you could imagine that, that solar panels uh, with batteries to store the energy uh, might be a source uh, for uh, the pumps for long-term uh, makeup water and that kind of thing. So, so the, the threat that you bring up is, is really a severe threat, and, and we've proposed a solution. It's unfortunate, though, uh, that a petition for rulemaking has been pending at the NRC uh, since 2011, and, and there has not been final action on that even uh, as we speak uh, today. Interesting you talk about 2011 because San Rafael Nuclear Power Plant in uh, California lost power during that uh, during that event, and yeah, that was one of those issues that we had to deal with in our. The generators came back; they had generators, but they lost power from San Diego, so that was you know. Well, sure. That that blackout was about a 24-hour blackout. Right. 24 hours isn't long enough for the spent fuel pools to boil off. So, so I think the spent fuel pools were, were amply safe during that event. Uh, and as you, you point out, the emergency diesel generators started up and, and they were able to provide um, cooling for the reactor core. Right. But they could have, if it was like a long-term thing, that that's what we're talking about at this point. Would have been, it would if, have been. If it was a long-term thing, the, the impact could have been horrific. There's no doubt about that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's literally down the street from where, where we do our stuff. I mean, we're, we are in the EPZ where where I work. So yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thanks for that. So, okay. And I was going to ask you about solar. You kind of brought this up specifically with the makeup water. Solar, is, if you are off, they're not off grid, but if you're on the grid with solar power and you have a battery backup, are you going to be impacted by any of these issues that we're talking about? You're going to be impacted greatly. You, you may have the power to recharge your cell phone, but the cell phone towers are going to run out of electricity from, from the, the emergency diesel generators because those generators are going to run out of fuel. The police stations, the fire stations, the hospitals uh, may also run out of backup fuel. It, it's a, a myth uh, to think that if, if you have solar panels for your house and you're able to keep a little bit of electricity going to your house so you can turn on lights at night and that kind of thing, it's a myth to think that in the long term you're, you're going to be okay. You're, you're going to be more comfortable in the very short term but once we get beyond, uh, I'd say, 72 hours, 
having those solar panels uh, really isn't going to protect you from the societal effects of a long-term power outage. Speaking of societal effects, and I know that back in the, oh my gosh, I'm going to come in the year. I think it was like, wasn't it the 60s when New York City had the big blackout and because of the blackout there was spike in crime and riots? What, what year was that that happened? Do you remember? Oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Uh, what, what was the timing of the event that you were talking the about? The New York City blackout, the famous one. I, let me look it up real quick. I forget what year it happened. Uh, yeah, well, New York City has had several blackouts, and, and the most recent one in, in 2003, civil order was maintained, but in, in, in one of the blackouts prior to that, uh, there was uh, rioting and, and looting and, and that kind of thing. 1977. That's what occurred. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it was July 13th to the 14th of 1977 when there were a uh, was a big uh, a blackout in New York City and between Queens and uh, and the Rockaways. And during those times, there was a, a series of looting and rioting. And, and and as soon as the sun went down, the, the crime spiked. Do you think that would be a normal, or I say normal, but would that be a, a result of a long-term blackout? Would we see that type of civil unrest again? Well, let's think through this. If people don't have water to drink and, and food to eat, and, and this has persisted for a week or two, I, I think that uh, the, the chance that people would go out and try and find food on their own, I think that's almost a certainty. And you, you can call it what you will at that point in time. Now, uh, if we're talking about civil unrest uh, the very first night after a blackout, well, th- th- that's something that uh, I would hope wouldn't happen, but I, I think in, in some communities that there is a good chance that that kind of thing would happen. So I really think we need to make a distinction in terms of, of civil unrest or looting and that kind of thing between uh, in the very uh, early hours of a blackout where if people just shelter in place and, and stay put, things are going to be okay, and then compare that to a longer-term situation where, frankly, uh, people are, are just trying to survive. Mm. So something that we probably should be thinking about when we're doing our power outage or utility failure planning, um, we should maybe take that into consideration of what the societal impact is of, of the uh, power outage yeah. in general. Okay, and I know I asked the question before, but I, I just want to just kind of pop back onto that. How do we prepare our communities for a potential power outage? What, I mean, do we just talk about the all hazard stuff again like in california we really focus on earthquake do i mean is it is a fear mongering if we tell them hey be prepared for power outage as well uh, i mean like what do we how do we prepare the community without making it sound like we're doomsday preppers i think the communities need to have a serious discussion and maybe even a task force with public safety officials and the leadership of these municipalities and the emergency planners uh, for the local utilities. So, so I'm talking about the police chief, the fire chief, the heads of the hospitals, the mayor, emergency planners in the municipality. We're talking about, uh, for the larger municipalities, a, a representative from uh, FEMA as well. Mayors uh, should be aware of this. They don't have to be involved in every detail. But to plan out things in advance and to understand, okay, we are now in a blackout. The blackout was not predicted. Uh, it occurred at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now the sun's setting. Hmm. Is there a plan to call a curfew or not? Uh, is there a plan to police, put uh, squad cars at pharmacies or not? Uh, is there a plan 
to manually direct uh, traffic at major intersections or not. Mm -hmm. uh, th these are the kind of things uh, that really need to be considered in advance because as a society, we will have blackouts. Uh, there are just too many vulnerabilities, too many potential causes of blackouts. Some of them are natural disasters. Some of them could be deliberate. But to not plan in advance and, and figure out what the response of municipalities and first responders to these kind of events, to not do this kind of emergency planning in advance, I think is just uh, irresponsible. Uh, as a society, we need to come to grips with this, especially if, as we have become ever more dependent on reliable and secure electric power. Wow, some pretty heavy stuff. If somebody wants to learn more about what you guys are doing, how can they find more information on your organization? A great question. There's a couple of really good ways. Uh, first of all, go to our website. It's www.resiliencesocieties.org. Uh, we have a lot of material there. Uh, we've testified in Washington, D.C. several times. That testimony is up on the website. We've uh, also contributed to many different uh, rulemakings and standard settings for grid reliability and security uh, standards. All that material is on our website. We have background material about the threats that we talked about today, solar storms, nuclear EMP, physical attack, cyber attack. That's all on our website. And then for people uh, who want updates as to what's currently going on, I'd recommend our Twitter feed, which is at Resilient Grid. And we, we uh, typically uh, tweet about once or twice a day uh, with current news items about electric grid security. So those are two great sources. Okay, here comes the toughest question of the day. So what book or books do you recommend to people who are interested in learning more about this issue? There's a number of books out there, but uh, there are two excellent books by Michael Maybe uh, on emergency planning for uh, grid outages. Uh, so uh, Michael Maybe uh, has some broad experience. Uh, he, he's been a suburban policeman, an emergency medical technician. A, um, he served in the U.S. Army uh, in two tours of deployment in Iraq as a command sergeant major. And again, he's, he's the author of two excellent books on uh, emergency planning. So I, I would recommend those. Uh, and then there's other books, too, uh, which are more technical. Uh, that and, uh, and, and then let's not forget, there's some fictional accounts, uh, such as uh, One Second After by uh, Bill Fortune. I think that uh, I'd have some differences with some of the, the details of the scenario in, the, in that book, but I think that the, the basic thrust is, is correct, that there's going to be an enormous societal implications uh, to any kind of a long-term uh, grid outage. Awesome. Really good recommendations. And just for the record, Michael maybe is a contributing rec uh, author for Ian Weekly, so I have to second your, uh, uh, your opinion on those, uh, on those books. Well, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we let you go? I think that you've had some really excellent questions today, Todd, and I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. 
Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.